Our scripture today is Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. There is a story in 2 Samuel chapter 23 about King David and his mighty men, the warriors who were closest to him. Apparently, at some time or another uh, in Israel's history, their rivals, the Philistines, they had created a garrison in and around the city of Bethlehem. And while David was holed up in their stronghold in the cave of Adullam, he made some wistful statement about, oh, how he longed for water from this spring in Bethlehem. He just wished he could have a drink from that spring. It was his favorite spring. And so his buddies, his mighty men who loved him so much, they decided they were going to get him some water, get him a drink from the spring. They go behind the, uh, the enemy lines. They sneak back there. They, they break in. They get a pail of water, and they bring it back to David in the cave. And guess how David responds? He pours out the water. He poured out the water in front of them. It says that he was so overcome by their sacrifice that he couldn't drink it. He said it would be like drinking the blood of the men who risked their lives uh, out of their bond and their care for him. It was too valuable to drink. And so he pours it out before the Lord as a sort of offering. Long sermon, right? Long passage. I shared that this morning, uh, the story, because I think it's a helpful prism for us reflecting on this story from Mark 14, deep friendship, acts of extravagant service and care for the ones that we love, questions about waste and worth, right? They're all kind of resonances here. In Mark 14, here in the middle of this dinner party leading up to Jesus's final days before the cross, this actually also happens right before the Last Supper, this woman seems to mirror both David and the mighty men. She offers this extravagant gift of honor, but one that others view as a waste. 
She's unnamed in Mark's gospel. In the gospel of John, she's identified as Mary. So I think we'll just call her Mary. Uh, I think that's, that's good enough for us. We don't actually know why Mary did what she did. They're in the house of Simon the leper, presumably not actually a leper anymore. She, he wouldn't have been able to host a dinner party. Um, but the host doesn't seem to matter as much to Mark as the guests, particularly the extravagant actions of Mary and the response from everyone else. So why did Mary do what she, what she did? It could have simply just been an act of adoration and love, extravagant act of blessing for Jesus because she cared for him so much. Some scholars also suggest it could have been symbolic of something more political. That often, uh, you know, there's some precedent for this idea of, of new kings to be anointed even in secret um, over the head in this sort of way, kind of as a uh, way of preparation before a military coup. So perhaps she had hoped the action would be remembered uh, for him as being set aside for this imminent sort of intervention. Or maybe she recognized the significance of Jesus' several statements up to this point about what was going to happen to him, that he was going to be betrayed, handed over to the priests, that he was going to be crucified, and then, and then to also rise again. And so she wants to give him this special honor as a preparation for his burial, as he does uh, allude to. We aren't actually granted any sort of uh, insight into the inner workings of her mind during this incident. What we do know is how others responded to it, how the other people at the dinner party, how Jesus himself interpreted the events. For those around the table, including the disciples, they were outraged by this waste that they had just witnessed. The nard, the perfume, uh, was a rare fragrant oil that had to be imported from India. And the value at that time was apparently around 300 denarius, or roughly equivalent to a year's wages for a day laborer. Just to put that into further perspective, when Jesus instructed the disciples to feed the crowds of 5,000, they estimated that cost would be about 200 denarius to buy enough food for everyone. So this perfume, if it had been sold in order to help care for the poor, it could potentially have fed over 7,500 people. That's a lot of people, a lot of food. It makes sense that the disciples and the other dinner guests might react the way that they did. That was a lot of earning potential. Could have made a huge difference. But Jesus saw something much different in this action. For him, it was the last great kindness that he would receive before severe trauma and rejection. It was the only kind of anointing that he would receive for his burial as well. Earlier in chapter 6 in Mark's gospel, it tells about how John the Baptist, his disciples, took his body and honored him in his burial and anointed it. Jesus, in contrast, doesn't get any of that. He will be hurriedly buried by a stranger in a borrowed tomb, no anointing. This is what makes his statement about the poor so profound, by the way, because he's not saying that the poor are somehow not deserving of help in this. He's making a statement about the gravity of the time that lies ahead. The contrast isn't between the poor and the rich, but between what will always be and what will not always be. Namely, there will always be an opportunity to care for others, but the time is running out for the disciples to be able to care for Jesus in this sort of special way while he is with them. She may or may not have sensed that significance, but it's apparent that she grasped how significant Jesus was. 
We, we can tell that. She wanted to honor him. Not knowing else, how else to honor him, she did what she could. Jesus said. She wasted her most treasured possession as a sacred offering for the one that she believed in. And this wasted, treasured fragrance was an act of worship when poured out to honor him. This stands in direct contrast to the response of Judas Iscariot. It doesn't say in Mark's gospel that it was Judas who voiced the uh, concern. It says that all other people there were, were thinking the same thing, basically. I believe it's in John's gospel that it singles out Judas as the one who, uh, who made the statement. Uh, like Mary, we actually don't know why Judas did what he did in betraying Jesus as well. And Matthew and John, they claim greed as the chief motive. John even identifies Judas as the one who had asked the question and also as the one who is dipping into the purse. He has been keeping the finances for the, the 12. Uh, and Luke and John claim that Satan in some way entered into Judas at this time. There are other theories as well. Extra-biblical documents like the Gospel of Judas try to cast him in a more positive light, claiming that Jesus had some special purpose for Judas in his actions that no one else knew about. Some others have suggested that Judas was becoming disillusioned with Jesus and his predictions of death and thought that his actions might force Jesus' hand into some more direct confrontation with Rome. And then there's also, if you watch Jesus Christ Superstar, that's a whole other treatment of, uh, of how Judas uh, was responding to the situation and disillusionment. Mark's gospel, though, offers no clear motive here. All we have in Mark is that he did it. That's all we know. I'd suggest the truth is that human uh, motivations for things are often much more complex than we like to make them out to be. We're rarely that simple. There are many little triggers and streams of thought and, and experience that lead us to the decisions that we make. So we don't fully know why Judas did what he did. But again, we know how others responded to it, and we know how Jesus interpreted it. It's a profound act of betrayal. We have the benefit of hindsight, so the story of Judas might hold little drama to us. I shared a couple weeks ago, reading through the whole uh, Easter story for the first time with the kids, and when we got to the part of Judas betraying Jesus, they were like, oh, he did what? You know, it's, it's a surprising thing. It would have been equally surprising for the disciples at the time, too. Surprising enough that uh, whenever Jesus predicts and even explicitly names the one who dips uh, the bread in the bowl with me, this is the one who's going to betray me, they still seem to have no idea that it was Judas. We forget that like the others, Jesus chose Judas to be among the twelve. After praying all night, he really uh, prayed and decided which twelve did he want to call, and Judas was among those twelve. And they spent every day together for three years, talking, eating together, laughing. Jesus sent Judas out with the other twelve. Jesus shared, or, or Judas shared in the miracle of feeding five thousand people. His hands helped to take those small loaves and those fishes and distribute them miraculously to the crowds. Judas would have helped to heal people, to cast out demons. Judas saw Jesus walk on water, raise people from the dead, honor the poor, shame the proud and the conceited. He was there for all of that. What makes betrayal so painful is that it's someone who knows your heart, who has built trust with you and relationship with you through shared experience 
and that person chooses to believe that you're really dangerous, that it's safer to be against you than before you. You can't be betrayed by an enemy. You can only be betrayed by a friend. Judas was a friend of Jesus. We know that even in the end, his heart wasn't completely hardened against Jesus. The affection that he had for Jesus haunted him so much after the betrayal that he attempted to give the money back. He ended up taking his own life out of his grief, his anguish. We've got two characters here, Mary and Judas. Mary made a sacred offering that seemed like waste. Judas instead wasted the sacred gift. Jesus' friendship. Jesus had given to him. And then, and there's Jesus. It's so fascinating to me the way that Jesus responds to both Mary and to Judas. Unlike David, Jesus receives the extravagant gift his friend Mary gives to him. Not in a prideful way, not in a, oh, finally, someone did this. Perhaps not even in the way she intended, but with great humility, he ex- receives this kindness before offering up himself. And to Judas, Jesus continues to extend love, even in the face of betrayal. He still shared his last meal with Judas, he still washed Judas's feet. This is our Lord, the God of the universe who gives up his life, gives up all glory, die so that we might live. The King of kings and the Lord of lords who responds to betrayal and abandonment with forgiveness and love. So how will we respond to him today? Do we understand the significance of the moment of him here before us, with us now? How will we respond to him? Is Jesus worthy of our worship? Our attention? Our affection? What gift can we offer him? Whatever really be enough? This will seem like an aside, but it's going somewhere. Uh, This last week, someone stopped into my office and was asking me a question about the book of Revelation. They had come... uh, to the part in chapter 7 where it says that 144,000 people uh, would be sealed for redemption. And this was disconcerting to this individual because they said, you know, I've always thought that I was, you know, part of the people of God, but there's a whole lot of other people who also think that, and 144,000 doesn't seem like that much in comparison to the amount of people throughout history who, uh, uh, who have believed that. And so, like, where, how, do we, how can we know where we stand in there? And I, this was one of, the, like, my favorite things is when people come to me with Bible questions. I love to, to talk about that. And it was, so it's, it was such a gift to me. And I got to walk them through this really fun thing that happens throughout uh, Revelation where there's this uh, common thing where John will hear something He'll hear something, and then he'll look, and he'll see something different. And so in chapter 7, it talks about uh, the 12 tribes, and basically 12,000 people from every tribe are being sealed, uh, sealed for redemption. It's this kind of symbol of what God is doing for, for God's people. God hears that, or, Ju- or John hears that, 
And then he turns and he sees a great multitude beyond count from every tribe and nation and and tongue and people. And a a similar thing happens just a few chapters beforehand in in Revelation chapter 5, where it says uh, there's this image in in the throne room where um, there's this this scroll with seven seals on it. It's supposed to represent the judgment that's going to finally come upon evil. That it will finally be done away with. God's victory will be won. And they're looking, they're saying, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to break the seals? And they look and they can't find anyone for a minute. And John is really disconcerted by this. He starts crying. There's, is there anyone worthy? Is there anyone worthy? And then one of the elders turns to him and says, don't worry. Look, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is worthy. He is victorious. His triumph. And again, John hears that. Then he looks, he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And as I'm sharing with this individual, I'm like this, it's so beautiful that the one, the only one worthy to make right judgment about the end of all things, to hold all of this in his hands, is the one who gave himself up for us. Profound mercy and love. So beautiful. Same Jesus who loves those who betray him. Same Jesus who would wash his disciples' feet. Is he worthy of our worship?